0: Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can truly do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And even though we see so many things taking place in this world that truly is about to take the majority of the people in this world as an overwhelming surprise, Father, we desire to be counted amongst those whom the word of God calls the children of the light and that that day take us not unawares. And so, please forgive us of our sins. Send us your Holy Spirit. May he come and open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things from your word. For Father, this is our prayer that we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You know, I was studying uh, a little bit about our church history. And as I was studying church history, there was some accounts in our history that I began to read about that I thought was very eye-opening. One of them was that during the time of the Dark Ages... How many of you have ever read the book Great Controversy? Okay, good. That's pretty much almost 100% of you. That's a blessing. Well, that means that I'm sure you remember the account where one of the ways that God would differentiate himself, his people, and his work from that which was done by the papacy during the time of the Dark Ages. If you remember, there was a little story about some reformers who decided to paint a picture. If you remember reading that in Great Controversy, they wanted to show the difference between the pomp and the arrogance of the Pope versus the simplicity of Jesus Christ. And the best way that they knew that they could do that was by painting a picture. And as they painted that picture and laid it before the people, the people were able simply by the viewing of a picture, they were able to see truth versus error. And it began to stimulate their minds to the point that they began to inquire, well, wait a minute, are we really followers of Jesus Christ? And it was part of what brought about this great work that was known as the Reformation. Well, the reason why I bring that up to you is because I believe in pictures, And I believe that there are pictures that can be presented before God's people that, by his grace, will have an effect on their minds and make them think. An example of that would be that I want you to notice this picture. When you see this picture, what comes to your mind? It is imperative that we take a moment to glean on that picture. And the reason why I want you to glean at that picture and look at it carefully is because this picture tells the story of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This picture makes clear as day the whole purpose of our movement. I remember reading that little book, Manuscript Release, book one, page 228, where it says so clearly that God's purpose in giving the third angel's message is to prepare a people to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Do you know that's the whole purpose of why we exist? Our whole purpose, brothers and sisters, of why we exist as a movement, as a people, is so that we can prepare men and women and show them how to stand true to God during the final scenes of this investigative judgment. That's why you're here. That's why you are here. Nothing else counts. Nothing else matters. If we forfeit this work, brothers and sisters, you might be doing a work, but you're not going to do the work that's designed to finish the work. And this is solemn. You know why? Because that quotation goes on. It begins to tell us that this is the reason that we establish and maintain our publishing houses. That means that the only reason our publishing houses exist today is to help people know how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Then it says our schools. Do you know the whole purpose of a Seventh-day Adventist school is to show people how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment? I see a lot of schools that are being told, that are telling people that we're Seventh-day Adventists. Brothers and sisters, time will tell. Because anybody can take a name. Anyone can claim a name. That's easy. Romans chapter 9 and verse 6 says, not all who say they are Israel are Israel. Anyone can say who they are, but at the end of the day, it's the character that tells that we are who we say we are. If you call yourself a seven-day Adventist school, and if people can literally graduate and not know how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment, you might be a school, but you're definitely not a seven-day Adventist school. Are you following? This picture says so much. And it closes in that paragraph by telling us that this is the focus of every line In the work I see so many medical missionary booths and I see so many school booths and I see so many booths of every kind and brothers and sisters the key thing is this are we making sure that our booths have material that is designed to show people how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment brothers and sisters search your hearts search your curriculums search your programs Make a decision. Am I a Seventh-day Adventist or am I not? Because one thing I know for sure is that time is almost finished. And as a result of time being almost finished, it is decision time. Are you following? God wants to do something special in us and through us for his glory. Go with me to the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter. I want you to see what the Bible says as we just consider such a common verse, such a, a verse that has been with us perhaps all the years that we have named the name of Seventh-day Adventist. But the question is, have we considered it? The Bible says in Revelation, the 14th chapter, if you're there, please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Revelation 14, right there at verse 9, you see it was in 1842, between 1842 and 44, we find that the first and second angels' messages were given with great power. But, It was only after the disappointment of 1844 that once again, a new light came to God's people as they studied together to discover what was their error, what was their mistake. And of course, we know that they mistook the earth for the sanctuary and they began to understand through different uh, providential leadings that they began to understand the sanctuary in heaven. And of course, they saw the law of God there and they realized that the sanctuary is not on earth, but in heaven and that God moved from the holy to the most holy to begin doing a work of judgment, to blot out sin, not simply to forgive, sin not simply to cover sin but to completely blot it out which means you don't do it anymore which means you get to a point in your love relationship with Jesus Christ that you love God so much that you actually would prefer to die than sin against God I want you to think about that and I'm gonna tell you the truth brothers and sisters this has been the great focus of Jesus since 1844 till today and I believe with all of my heart, the reason why Christ has not come is because he has not rebuilt his love within our hearts. We love sin more than Jesus. And that's why we're so loyal to it. Don't ever forget, we are loyal to what we love. What you love, you're loyal to it. There's no question about it. You love food, you're going to be loyal to it. No matter how much counsel you get on health reform, if you love food more than principles of life and health and strength, you're going to be loyal to it. And when the, belly, when the God belly growls, you're going to go ahead and invest in it. And so it is with anything else. If you love video games, if you love sex, if you love whatever it may be, brothers and sisters, you're loyal to what you love. And this is why Jesus, he has come and he wanted to reveal himself to us. By beholding, we'd behold that lovely image of Jesus so clearly that by beholding, we would become changed and we begin to love the very one that we behold more than life itself. And when that's done, brothers and sisters, that's when God says, Now it is safe to bring them into eternity with me, and not before then. The Bible says in Revelation 14, starting at verse 9, and the third angel, this was that prophesying again, Revelation 10:11. that prophesying again. The third angel now had to also come into the picture while they once again had to repeat the first and second angel. And the Bible says in Revelation 14, 9, this has been the great focus since 1844. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man... Worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this must be your experience. This must be my experience. This should be the focus. How can I get to a point that God can look at me and count me as one of his patient saints? Now, go to the book of Matthew chapter 16. It was a long time ago... That Jesus spelled something out in Matthew 16 we know it to be true but we also know that Satan will do everything possible to hinder this from becoming a reality the Bible says in Matthew the 16th chapter in verse 13 it says when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples saying whom do men say that I the son of man am And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah, so one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? It gets to a point that sooner or later it doesn't matter what everybody else says. Christ wants to know what do you say? What do you believe? Where's your faith? None of us are going to make it into the kingdom of heaven on someone else's bootstraps. Even if their name is mom and dad. Even if their name is pastor or elder. We must get to a point that our walk with Jesus is ours. It's personal. It's between he and I. I've developed a friendship with the one who is altogether lovely. Jesus says, what do you say? Now I want you to look at how this goes on in this dialogue. After he asked the question, it says, And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, or rather, Whom say ye that I am? Verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon bar for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus made a profound statement about his church. The same church that we just saw was designed to give the herald of the third angel's message. Christ says that this same church, he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what we learn in that is that while the gates of hell will not prevail, the gates of hell will definitely attack. That's clear. It says it doesn't prevail. The only way it can say that is because it attacked but failed. So while we know that God's church is going to make it through, brothers and sisters, at the same time, we are going to be attacked. Because of this belief, because of this message, because of this experience, Satan is going to attack the church. And brothers and sisters, the reason why this is so important is because I want to show you a principle in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. Go there with me now. In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, I want you to see what God is trying to show us here because the Bible is clear of what our mission is. Our mission is to give the herald of the three angels' messages. Our mission is to lift up the banner of truth hidden under that wonderful third angel's message. But at the same time, we also understand that the church is going to be attacked. And now I want you to see what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. In 1 Corinthians, chapter 10... We're just going to go ahead and consider verse 11. Now, let me give you the backdrop. From verses 1 to 10, the Bible's just talking about all of these different things that took place with Israel of old. It talks about how Israel complained, Israel murmured, Israel fornicated, Israel did all sorts of different wicked sins. And as a result of that, they suffered their just punishment. Well, here it is that now we get to 1 Corinthians 10, and I want you to see what it says in verse 11. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now all these things happen unto them. Who's the them? Israel. Israel. It says all these things happen unto them for and samples. Now, what does the word ensamples mean? Example. We would normally say example, but you see that in verse 6 just a little bit up there, it also used the, the word example. So therefore, it is true that there was an example to take place, but brothers and sisters, when you look at that word ensample, you will find that it's a Greek word called "typos," And you know what that word means? Types. Types. And every type must have What? An anti-type. Very good. So we find now that the Bible is telling us that all these things that happen unto Israel of old happen for and samples or types, and they are written for our admonition upon what? Whom the ends of the world are come. Who's that? That's us. That's us. So what that now is teaching us is that when we look at the events of Israel of old... It is in many respects a typology of several events that are going to take place in God's church in the last days. In other words, while it is true that we are to look outside the church to understand where we are in prophecy, brothers and sisters, we would also do well to pay close attention to what's happening inside the church because that also lets us know where we are in prophecy. Are you following while it is true that God has given Israel his law, while it is true that God gave Israel all sorts of beautiful health messages and all sorts of statues and judgments designed to show them how to live day by day and live a happy, holy life, we cannot help but to go to Exodus 32, where all of a sudden Israel is now dancing and singing and swinging. All of a sudden Israel is partying. All of a sudden, Israel is going back into the practices of idolatry to the point that God now has to rebuke them through his servant Moses. We cannot help but to go also through the Bible. And we begin seeing that when Moses was the prophet of God, used by God as his mouthpiece, that all of a sudden there were individuals who would rise up against the prophet of God and begin to say, why do we have to listen to him? Cannot God speak to me too? It's kind of like when people say today, why do I need to listen to Ellen White? Can't God speak to me too? can not i be a last day prophet it's amazing how we repeat the footsteps of israel almost too accurately it's amazing that when god gave the children of israel manna and he said that this was going to be your food for you all of a sudden you read just there in the book of numbers where all of a sudden israel says you know i am tired of this manna. i want the good old flesh pots of egypt do you hear those type of rumblings today Brothers and sisters, we can look throughout and we can see very clearly that many of us, we are reflecting Israel of old. And you remember the last thing, Satan's last attack on Israel, don't you? It was right there at that bank of the Jordan, Numbers chapter 25, and you remember that it was right there at the bank of the Jordan that Israel was just about to enter into Canaan land, and that was the very time that all of a sudden Satan says, I'm going to send my last secret weapon, and he sent a bunch of Moabite women, whores. And, brothers and sisters, you know, we're seeing that being fulfilled in two phases today. In the literal application, we're seeing it because there has never been so much sexual sin taking place in God's remnant church. And it does not matter, and Satan is not a respecter of persons. He will go from the top all the way down and he'll get whomever he can get. And we see it happening. We see it happening. We are finding that lustful, sexual-based sins are taking place in God's church now, brothers and sisters, and Christ wants us to see that. Not that we would capitalize on it. Not that we would certainly not boast about it. And not that we would begin to point fingers and judge one another. But Christ wants us to understand that we are repeating history. And as a result of that, he says, I want you to capture a clear view of what's taking place. So while we see that, unfortunately, sexual sin is running rampant, but then we know that a woman, typically in prophecy, also can represent a church. And like never before, we're finding, you saw the seminar just earlier with the contemplative prayer and all these different methodologies and concepts and ideologies that we are literally borrowing from Babylon. Mm. Babylon does not have a message, brothers and sisters, that can bring about a harvest. Did you know that? Mm. Why do we borrow from them so much? And we're so ashamed of our message. And so we see that history is being repeated to the point that it got so bad that notice how the Bible spells it out in Revelation chapter 3. Look at what happened. The very people who were supposed to prepare the people of God to stand true to him during the investigative judgment, the people of the judgment, notice what God had to say about his own people in Revelation, the third chapter. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, and I'm sure we know this verse very well, and it is none other than Revelation 3 and verse 14. God had to give a message, a letter to those who represented the people of the judgment. And the Bible says in Revelation 3 and verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. God makes it clear we can hide. Other people may not see us, but God knows what's going on when no one else is looking. And brothers and sisters, even when no one else is looking, God says, I also know what's going on in the heart. First Samuel 16, 7. God says, I know your works. No one is going to be able to sneak into the kingdom. God is looking for purified hearts that will transition into purified lives. He says, I know that works. That thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Mm. What can make God want to vomit? Mm. What is it that could actually make Christ want to vomit? The Bible says, because thou sayest that I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. This is the attitude of Laodicea. And you want to know how that's being played out today? Sometimes you can give somebody so much Bible and spirit of prophecy to show them that the path that they're going is wrong, but they say, you know what, I'll just wait for the Lord to speak to me. Until then, I'm doing my own thing. Mm. That is, that, that's saying I'm rich. I'm increased with good. I don't need God's counsel. I have my own counsel. There are individuals today that say, no matter what the Bible says, and I've seen this over and over again. I've done meetings, and we'll go ahead and preach and teach the Word of God, and we'll say, do you love Jesus? And everybody says, oh, yes, I do. And then all of a sudden, you begin to identify an idol in their life. Just like Jesus had to do with that young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to him. You remember the story. Master, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, how do you understand the law? And then he says, well, I know all those things. I've been keeping that from my youth up. And then Jesus says, hmm, okay. God blessed Jesus with that discernment that he looked at that man and he knew there was an idol in that man's life. A God in his life. And therefore, Jesus attacked his God. Go ahead and take everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then come follow me. And all of a sudden the same brother who thought he was a commandment keeper realized that he just violated the first two just off of that he had another God and an idol in his life and it was his money there are many of us today brothers and say oh I love Jesus I want to follow him and do his will but at the same time once the idol is identified all of a sudden that love for Jesus suddenly disappears you know the Bible tells us the fruit of loving Jesus you know what it is don't you John 14, 15, if you love me, what did Jesus say you'll do? You'll keep my commandments. You remember when Jesus separated the sheep from the goat in Matthew 25? He talked about the sheep over here, the goat over there. So that means that in the church we have sheep and goats, right? You know, you know how you know a sheep and a goat, right? I had an evangelist friend of mine share this with me and it was so potent. I said, oh man, I got to share that with the God's people. The way you can know a sheep from a goat in the church is very simple. Sheep always follow the shepherd. Sheep will just follow the shepherd. If that shepherd goes ahead and tries to lead the sheep, the sheep sheep will just go ahead and follow. And if the shepherd has to do a little gentle redirection or what have you, they'll go ahead and do it. And the sheep will realize, oh, okay. And the sheep will just start following and cooperating. That's sheep. Sheep follow the shepherd. But you know a goat. A goat has horns on his head, doesn't it? You know why a goat has horns on his head? So it can do what? So it could butt things. You want to know how you know a goat in the church? I know what the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy says, but. Uh, It's true the Bible says this about health reform, but. It's true that the Spirit of Prophecy says this about dress reform, but. Goat. God doesn't want you to be a goat. He says he wants you to be a sheep. Follow the shepherd, wherever he leads, whatever he tells you to do, you follow. God says that they think that they're rich and increase with good, have need of nothing, but they don't know that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and even naked. Christ says that I can't save anybody like that. And that's why he counsels us. Listen, buy of me gold, tried in the fire, white raiment, and so on. And brothers and sisters, the reality is this, the very church that was designed and raised up to prepare the people to stand true to God during the investigative judgment, we're finding that there are many of us now in the church that we ourselves are not standing true to God during this investigative judgment. And therefore, our message has become weak. As a result of this, God says, I must do something. You want to know what God's going to do? Go to the book of Amos chapter 9. In Amos chapter 9, we find that God says, I'm going to have to do something. In Amos, the ninth chapter, I want you to see this now. Because of this reality, because of this true condition that we are in, we think we're all right when really we're all wrong. The Bible says in Amos chapter 9, I want you to see what God says he must do. And as he did it with Israel of old, he's doing it with Israel today because all these things happen unto them for and samples. Notice what the Bible says in Amos chapter 9. In Amos 9 and verse 9. The Bible says, for lo, I will command and I will do what? I will sift the house of Israel among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sleeve. It says, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Christ says that my church has gotten to a point that there are so many bad things that have taken place. There's so many adoptions and adaptations that have taken place that Christ says, I have no other recourse. I need to shake up my church. And brothers and sisters, that shaking has started since the days of Sister White. And we're living in the closing scenes of those shakings. And this is why, brothers and sisters, you know what my real message is for you today? Stay focused. Stay focused. Brothers and sisters, stay focused. And with staying focused, stand firm. With staying focused, stand firm. The reason why I say that is because there are traps that the devil is using today to try to distract God's people that we lose our focus and that we're no longer standing firm. You say, Brother Lemon, what do you mean? Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you is when you're in a church and you realize that every wind of doctrine is blowing now, people have made salvation out of 2520. People have made salvation out of feast days. People have made salvation out of all these spirits doctrines. Brothers and sisters, and people are getting caught up by these winds. Brothers and sisters, you're not staying focused. You're not standing firm. We're getting caught up in fanaticism and all these different things. And all it's designed to do is to shake us. When we begin seeing all these battles and fights that are taking place, I learned something very powerful from an African proverb. You want to know what the African proverb is? When two elephants fight, when two elephants fight, you want to know what really gets hurt? The grass. In other words, two elephants can fight and and they may scathe one another here and there, but you know what really gets damaged? The grass. You know what you are? You are the grassroot members of the church. And there are elephant powers fighting in our church right now, brothers and sisters. And while these elephant powers are fighting against one another, brothers and sisters, you will find that it's the grassroot people that are getting hurt the most. You got to stay focused. You got to stand firm. Don't get distracted. We have already been told that heresies were going to come in. That's why when I hear about homosexual movements in the church, I'm hurt, but I'm not surprised. When I hear about individuals who can even be paid by God's sacred tithe and they have the nerve to say there is no sanctuary, and no victory over sin. Brothers and sisters, that's a sin. And I'm hurt, but I'm not surprised. Would I hear of whole conferences that can come together or a union and they can go ahead and vote against what the Bible clearly says? And what the spirit of prophecy clearly says? And when the GC president takes a stand and pleads from his heart to say, please, we're not saying don't do it. We're just saying let's give it time so we can address it in the right place. And the people who profess to be part of the patient states demonstrate impatience and go ahead and vote anyhow. Mm-hmm. I'm hurt, but I'm not surprised. Stay focused. Stand firm. Don't get caught in the minutiae because there's plenty of it. We're seeing all sorts of winds of doctrines and battles and behaviors taking place in God's church, and that's why God says, give them a picture." I lied to you not. I was on my knees 1:30 a.m. this morning. and I said, "Father, what do these people need? I only have one seminar. And God literally said, "Show them a picture." Give them their focus back. Brothers and sisters, that's your focus. Don't lose this focus. It is time to finish the work. The Bible spells out how this work was going to be finished in a wonderful way in Revelation chapter 10. Go there with me now. Revelation chapter 10. I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider Revelation chapter 10. It was in Revelation, the 10th chapter, that we find right there in verse 7, that there was something that was going to take place when this angel would begin to sound. The Bible says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, it says the mystery of God should be what? Finished. "finished, As he hath declared to his servants the prophets. The Bible says the mystery of God should be finished. This is the great work that Christ wants to do in that most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. He wants to make sure that that mystery of God gets finished. Now, what is this mystery? Go to Colossians chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1, what is that mystery? We want to show it from the Bible. We want to make it very clear. And then we're going to go ahead and study it from a practical perspective. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider verses 26 and 27. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, notice what the Bible says. It says, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ, Christ in you, the what? Hope of glory. Amen. This is the great work that Christ wants to finish. He wants the mystery to be finished, which is Christ in you, divinity in humanity again. The first time it was proclaimed in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, For great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That was talking about Jesus. Christ says, I finished this mystery, but now I want to finish one more mystery. That mystery is God in you, the hope of glory. First time, Jesus says, they have prepared me a body. And that was the body that Christ came down in. Brothers and sisters, once again, Christ says, I'm trying to prepare my body so that I can once again do a great work. Finishing the work. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, if Jesus is in us, then there must be a picture of what that looks like. If Christ is in us, this is the focus. That's the focus behind this picture. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not just simply knowing who the beast is, because brothers and sisters, there'll be many people who are going to know who the beast is and still receive the mark. Mm. There's a lot of people that understand all sorts of things about conspiracy theories and are not one step closer to Jesus than if they never knew any conspiracy theory. Understanding all the conspiracy theories, brothers and sisters, is not going to make you a child of God. Understanding days, times, and charts, that's not going to make you a child of God in and of itself. If prophecy does not have its sanctifying effect in the human heart, which is exactly what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, for we have also a more sure word of prophecy that we do well to take heed unto it as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until something happens. What is it that happens? The day dawn. And the day star arises in your heart. Brothers and sisters, if understanding prophecy has not increased your devotional life, something's wrong with your understanding of prophecy. If understanding prophecy has not increased your prayer life, something's wrong with your understanding of prophecy. If understanding dates and times and charts and all these other events, if it has not caused us to be more kind and courteous to others, something's wrong with your understanding of prophecy. No one can rightly, truly understand prophecy, brothers and sisters, and still not reflect that image of Jesus as they should. That was God's whole purpose of prophecy. The day star arises. And so you find that the focus of the third angel's message is to help us understand that time is almost finished. Soon, Sooner, very soon, the beast is going to flex its bicep and enforce its mark, and therefore, we must come to Jesus and find a refuge in him before it is too late. We must let him live out his life within us. Our scripture reading at our home right now with all of my children, our memory verse for this week is Galatians 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must let him live out his life within us. That's the great work that Christ wants to do. Oh, I love this picture. There's so much in this picture. What does Jesus look like? The book of John 14 with me. Let's 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 study the Bible. Study the Bible. John 14. In John the 14th chapter, I'm just going to show you some cute little gems here, I believe the word of God put there on purpose so that our minds could be stimulated by study. The Bible says in John 14 and verse 6, you know this text very well, I'm sure. Jesus, of course, was saying that he's going to the Father. And then they say, How can you go to the Father and tell us to come and we don't know the way? And then what was Jesus' answer? I am the way, the truth. And the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Christ says, I'm that way. That gets there. Now, with Jesus being the way to the Father, I want you to notice what the Bible also says about the way in Psalms, the 18th division. Go to Psalms 18 now. Look at this. I thought this was very interesting. We're just looking a little bit at Jesus. I hope you don't mind that. In Psalms, the 18th division, I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider Psalms 18 and verse 30. Christ is the way to the Father. Amen to that. But now notice what the Bible says in Psalms 18 and verse 30. The Bible also says, as for God, his way is what? Perfect. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. So Christ is not simply the way, but Christ is also perfect, the Bible says. Are you following? Now, because Jesus is perfect, I want you to see what the Bible shows naturally extends from him in his perfection, which is in Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter. Go there with me now. In Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, notice this now. Christ is the way. Jesus, that way, is perfect. And notice what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 32, as we consider now verse 4. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, he is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. So we find that Christ is the way. Christ was perfect, therefore his works were perfect. Are you following? Now, understanding that, now I want you to go ahead and go to the book of 1 John chapter 2. Let's transition. 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John, the second chapter now, let's see what the Bible says here. 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to consider verse 6. 1 John 2 and verse 6. And look at what the Bible says about Christ, who is that way. In 1 John chapter 2, notice what the Bible says as we consider verse 6. It says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to what? Walk. Walk even as he walked. So what did we learn about Jesus as it related to the way he walked in his life? He was what? Perfect. So therefore, what does God expect our walking life with him to be like? Perfect as well. Flawless. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. With God, this is possible. Amen. This is possible. Now, understanding this, go to John the 17th chapter and look at this. While Christ says that perfection that I had when I walked on this earth, Christ says that's the perfection I want you to have while you walk on this earth. And as a result of walking in that perfection, notice what is also the fruit thereof. John the 17th chapter. Notice what the Bible says in John 17. And we're going to consider John 17 and verse 18. John 17 and verse 18. Christ, as it relates to the work that he did, I want you to notice how how he spells it out of the work he wants us to do. The Bible says in John 17 and verse 18, it says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. So the same way that Christ, when he walked on this earth, he walked in perfect harmony and obedience to God is the same way he says that I want you to walk in this world in perfect harmony and obedience to God. Then the same way that his work was perfectly acceptable to God is the same way that he wants your work to be perfectly acceptable to God. Are you following so far? Is it simple enough so far? All right. Now watch this. The question is, how was Jesus able to live this, quote unquote, perfect life and do this perfect work? How was Jesus able to do that? Are you ready to see a beautiful quotation that I found that I thought was just amazing? Listen to this quotation here. I want you to think about this. You remember when Jesus, you remember that uh, he was there in the wilderness and fighting against Satan. And Satan, of course, was trying to tempt him. And as Satan was doing that, did Jesus get the victory? Oh, yes, he did. Jesus got the victory. Now, Jesus got the victory, and there are several reasons for this. And I want to give you some practical points. Because I believe if we can walk in the footsteps of the master, we can have the experience he had. Does that make sense? That's why he's called our example, our pattern man. Notice this. Jesus is there and he's rebuking Satan, get me behind me, Satan, and so on. And I want you to look at this quote. It says, God calls upon us to reach the standard of perfection and places before us the example of Christ's character. This is Acts of the Apostles 531. It says, in his humanity, look at this, perfected by a life of what? Constant resistance of evil. How, what was one of the keys or clues of how Christ's life was perfected? There was a constant resistance of evil. Now, let me pause on this. First of all, nothing, even Jesus, could not resist evil unless he had the one in him that enabled him to do it. That's why the Bible says that he was filled with the Spirit of God from his what? from his youth or from even his mother's womb so it is that when we dare to get into this battle with the enemy we must understand that it cannot be won by might or by power but by god's spirit so the first and foremost access that we need is to understand the need for the presence of god's holy spirit it can't happen without it brothers and sisters so if you think that you're just going to simply say, well, I'm just going to go ahead and resist evil, brothers and sisters, you're going to find that evil will entrap you every time. It is not by might nor by power, but it's by God's Spirit. We're going to need the indwelling presence of Jesus. We need His experience, brothers and sisters, to go ahead and live in His experience. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Now, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, He gives us power, Acts 1.8. So when the Holy Ghost comes to us, he gives us power. Part of what this power is designed to do is help us constantly resist evil. So therefore, going on now, the Savior showed that through cooperation with divinity, human beings may in this life attain to perfection of character. This is God's assurance to us that we too may obtain complete victory. Now, brothers and sisters, question. What do you think was one of the starting points that enabled Jesus to resist evil? Prayer. Good. What else? Knowing the word. Good. What else? Fellowship with his father. father. You must be husband and wife. (laughs) Amen. They said that in harmony. Beautiful. Fellowship with his father. What else? Fasting. Fasting. What else? Watch this. Discipline. If, if, I, if I say Isaiah 7:14, how many of you know what that verse says? If I say Isaiah 7:14, it's one of those popular Adventist texts. Do you know it, brother? Say again that what? OK, no problem. Go to Isaiah 7:14. Watch. When you read it you're going to say, "Oh, that's the that's text. Look at Isaiah 7:14. When I say Isaiah 7 and verse 14, I want you to notice this because it's not enough to just simply know uh, what jesus did but we need to know where he started that enabled him to do what he did so wherever jesus started we should start too now notice what the bible says in isaiah 7 and verse 14 it's actually a very popular text of scripture how many of you are looking at it right now and saying oh yes i know this verse how many of us okay so we know this verse right now in isaiah 7 14 the bible says therefore the lord himself shall give you a sign behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So, do we know, how many of us have read this verse before? Just by every single one of us, right? Okay, now watch this. We have read this verse before and the verse is talking about who? Jesus. It's talking about Jesus, but his name is? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. How many of you have ever read verse 15? What does it say in verse 15? It says in verse 15, let's read it together. It says, butter And honey shall he eat. Why did he eat it? That he may know to do what? Refuse the evil and do what? Choose the good. Jesus' life was a life that was of constant resistance of evil. Is that right? What was one of the agencies that God used in the life of little Jesus to assist him to accomplish that work? It was his diet. I want you to think about this because we live in a time right now where people still struggle seeing the connection between health reform and the third angel's message. People are still struggling to understand where does health reform play a role in victory over sin. And my thing is, is that clearly these are individuals who have not adopted the medical missionary mindset. The medical missionary, brothers and sisters, we are told is simply those who take the gospel and practice it. You will find that God, brothers and sisters, he just showed us from his word that one of the means that God gave to Jesus to enable and help him to constantly resist evil and choose good, God says, I'm going to give you a certain diet. I'm going to go ahead and give you certain things to partake of. Somebody says, but wait a minute, butter's in there. Isn't that an animal product? Sure it was, but it was safe to eat then. It's not now. The same way fish was able to be eaten then, but not now. If you don't believe that, you go to Hosea chapter 4, and you look at verses 1 to 3, and you see prophetically that God told us that in the last days, it says the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, and the fishes of the sea were all going to become enfeebled and diseased. That's why we don't eat fish today, even though Jesus fed people with fish in his day. Christ is simply letting us know what was safe to eat then is not safe to eat now. Even in the days of Ellen White. Ellen White says butter and cream was okay in her day, but she complimented it by saying, but very soon the time will come where it will be unsafe to eat eggs and milk and all these other things. And brothers and sisters, are we here yet? Yes, Yes. Yes, we are. Even Barabbas will tell you that. Mm. That's why it's a slap in every seven-day Adventist face when we're hungry and we got to go to a Buddhist to get a vegan meal. We have to go to to an Indian restaurant to get a vegan meal. We have to go to New Agers and literally empower them because we did not follow God's counsel of raising up hygienic restaurants as he told us to do. We were supposed to be the head and not the tail, and we are definitely the tail following another head. Christ was able to adopt this. Now, when Jesus ate this, I want, you to show, I want to show you something that governed the mind of Jesus that I pray will begin to govern your mind when it comes to eating and drinking. Go to the book of Proverbs 24 with me, and I want you to see something here. You see, there were qualifiers of the food that Christ ate. It is true that Christ ate butter and honey. I'm going to give you an example of some principles of what governed Jesus even in appetite as it relates to this thing on honey. Look at this very quickly with me. We're going to Proverbs chapter 24. Now, in Proverbs 24, I want you to see what the Bible says. This is uh, very interesting as I was reading this out. In Proverbs 24... These were principles that governed the mind of Jesus. These are principles that should govern you and I when it comes to our eating and drinking habits so that way we can have the experience Christ had so we can refuse what he refused and embrace what he embraced. Are you following? Yeah. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 24, verse 13. In Proverbs 24, verse 13, you see, even though Jesus, yes, honey, was part of his diet, but I want you to look at this. It says in Proverbs 24, 13, my son, eat thou honey, Why? because it is good so therefore when jesus would eat something he would eat it because he knew that god says it was good to eat are there things today that god is telling us is not good to eat does that include many of these unclean animals that includes all the unclean animals now how about the clean animals do you know most individuals who eat even clean meat today are practicing sin There were three rules in the Bible that God gave for all consumption of even clean meat. That's biblical and also reinforced in the New Testament. The first one, of course, is in Genesis 9, 3, and 4. That's for those of you who want to take notes. In Genesis 9, 3, and 4, God says, all right, you can eat the clean animals, but take all the blood out. So therefore, we shouldn't be eating animals if it has blood in it. When you read 1 Samuel 14 and verse 33, the Bible, the children of Israel said, we have sinned in that we have eaten blood. It's a sin to eat food, eat meat with blood in it. And it never was repealed. That's why in Acts 15, the Bible says in Acts 15, that the New Testament teaching was that they should not eat blood. So therefore, there are many individuals who by, very, by way of eating meat that still has blood in it, brothers and sisters, it can be a chicken, cow, or fish all you want. If it has blood in it, God says, I don't want my people eating it because disease flows through blood. And God says, my greatest desire for you is that you prosper and be in health. How can you do that if you're eating things with diseased blood in it? So God says, number one, that got to go. When you read uh, Leviticus 17 and verse 4, 3 and 4, it also says that all the fat had to be removed. So if you're going to eat animal products, number one, no blood. It has to be kosher or halal. Number two, fat has to be removed. Now here's where it really gets tough. Do you know that the Bible also says that after three days, that animal is not supposed to be eaten after it was killed? So I want you, if you looked at just those three simple rules, we could see that many of us are in total violation of the Word of God while we're eating our chicken, beef, fish, and goat, and everything else. Because many of us are eating it with blood inside, which the Bible forbids. Many of us are eating it with fat inside, while the Bible forbids. And many of us are eating it while it has been many days, perhaps weeks, after it has died. And we wonder why we're getting so sick and people are dying. And then when someone dies of cancer, one of these horrible diseases, we say, oh, well, it was their time. And we forget that Ecclesiastes seven seventeen says, neither be thou foolish, for why would you die before your time? So, brothers and sisters, God says, number one, I want my people to start getting control over their appetite. But it goes even deeper than that because it's not even about the product. It's also about something else. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 25, 16. Look at this now. In Proverbs 25, 16, it also says this. This was another principle that governed the eating habits even of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Proverbs 25, 16, Hast thou found honey? It says, Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit. So another rule of Jesus was that even if it's healthy, I cannot overindulge in it. Jesus was a very balanced man. And he understood that this enables me, in the function of my brain, to be able to think clearly when evil comes and presents its ways to me. And this is why he was mindful of what he put inside his system. So I'm not saying that apples are going to make you righteous. I am not saying that kale makes you righteous. Eve ate the most healthiest fruit that ever touched planet Earth, and it brought sin into the world. So there's no article of food that can make someone righteous or wicked. But brothers and sisters, what God is trying to say is, I want my people to be obedient. You see, it was an issue of obedience that brought sin into this world. It was disobedience. Disobedience. And so it is that Christ says, when I give an instruction as it relates to what I want my people to put inside of their temple bodies, he says I'm doing this because I want them to understand that it is a blessing when you are obedient. And therefore he warns us. Now, I want you to look at this. When we consider this quote here, what do you you think about that? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, somebody would probably die on the spot if they ate that. Now, This is clearly a picture of gluttony. This is a clear picture of overeating. Now, the first thing we want to understand is that having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting what? Holiness in the fear of God. So the perfecting of holiness in an individual, it is needed that there is a cleansing of ourselves from filthiness of the flesh and mind. It's not just simply all mental. It's not simply all spiritual, but it also deals with practices that we do with the body. That's 2 Corinthians 7.1. Now, it says gluttony is the prevailing sin of this age. That's the issue that's happening right now, overeating, gluttony. Now, notice this. It goes on to say, lustful appetite makes slaves of men and women and beclouds their intellects and stupefies their moral sensibilities to such a degree that the sacred elevated truths of God's word are not appreciated. It says the lower propensities have ruled men and women. That's why whenever I talk with people who are struggling with sexual addictions, one of the things that I deal with them on is on diet. Do you know that you have to deal with that if you're a counselor? If, you're, if all you're doing is just getting all into the psyche and the mind and, and all these other things, that's good, but that's not enough. We must get to the point of the diet. Why? Because we are just told. Look at it again. It says lustful appetite, lusting, a, a passion, a desire for something, strong, overbearing. It says it makes slaves of men and women and beclouds their intellects. So watch this. If the intellect is beclouded, And if the moral sensibilities are stupefied, that means that when someone comes to you and they come in the form of a temptation, and your intellect is beclouded, and your moral sensibilities are stupefied, then what's going to happen is the sacred elevated truths of God's word, they won't be appreciated, and the only thing to give into are going to be those lower propensities. The animalistic passions, the basic propensities. And that's why we have a whole bunch of young people masturbating. This is why we have all sorts of uh, individuals practicing all these illicit sexual behaviors and all these different things. All of this stuff. And by the way, you can also commit sin even in the marriage bed. I challenge anybody, read that book, Testimonies on Sexual Behavior. Marriage and divorce. And if you read that book, it talks about the lustful things that can take place in the marriage covenant. Some people are simply imitating pornography in the holy covenant of marriage. That's a sin. So we find that these lower propensities are taking control of individuals. Why? Because of lustful appetite. This is why God wants to address this thing. You remember in Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, the Bible tells us very clearly that Solomon says, Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee. And say, Who is the Lord? Brothers and sisters, overeating can affect the intellect and the moral sensibilities to the point that if we're not careful, we will literally deny God to his face. That's why God hates lustful appetite so much. And by the way, it's not just lustful appetite with burgers and fries. It can even be with tofu. That's right. It can even be with tofu. Jesus, Jesus ate honey. Honey was good, but Jesus still said, I'm only eating enough that's sufficient. Notice, it says, it is possible to eat immoderately even of wholesome food. It does not follow that because one has discarded the use of hurtful articles of diet, he can eat just as much as he pleases. Overeating, no matter what the quality of food, clogs the living machine and thus hinders it in its work. And so we find, brothers and sisters, that we must be careful that we do not allow lustful appetite to control us. Jesus was careful with that. And believe it or not, this was one of the means of how Christ was able to constantly resist evil. It was because he was temperate in all things, especially in appetite. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that this is a major struggle we still have today in present truth in Adventism. We minimize our health message. We minimize the health work. We still don't see the connection between health reform, the mind, and the third angel's message. And we wonder why we got people voting to put sisters and pastors and all these other issues in the church. Part of it could be that the mind was clouded. The intellect was beclouded. Could it be that the moral sensibilities were not in line? If you're going to deal with a problem, get to a lot of these root issues and stop dealing with a lot of these symptoms. These are some slides I'll go ahead and pass. I was, these are just medical articles. You know, sometimes people want to hear Barabbas before they hear Jesus. So this, this is Barabbas, this is the world. The world will tell you what's happening when it comes to overeating. It says, in March 28, 2010, Nature Neuroscience describes these rats' indulgent tribulations. They did a test on rats. They allowed the rats to overeat. The rats began overeating so much that it got to a point that it, they saw that the rats had started going through indulgent tribulations and adding to research literature on how excess food intake can trigger changes in the brain. So this is what Barabbas is saying in case people don't want to hear Jesus. The Bible said it a long time ago, but medical science is late, but nevertheless not too late. And they're telling us that overeating literally causes chemical changes in the brain. One of them is dealing with dopamine. And dopamine, it's a chemical produced in the brain that helps with cognitive ability. In other words, it allows people to think and make decisions look at this it says cognition and frontal cortex in the frontal lobes dopamine controls the flow of information from other areas of the brain dopamine disorders in this region of the brain can cause a decline in neurocognitive functions especially memory attention and problem solving that's medical science just affirming what solomon said so long ago if i eat too much food I can get to a point that I will deny you and even say, who is the Lord? That's the point, brothers and sisters. So therefore, one of the steps that we must do is that there must be a battle. If you find right now that whatever it be in your life, that there are constant temptations that are coming your way. First, access the power. Who's the power? Jesus is the power through his... Holy Spirit. So the first thing we need to do is tap into the power source, which is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. When He comes within us, He is the one that gives us power that when evil presents itself, we will be able to resist it. But we must cooperate. Amen. And the fruit of the Spirit is not just love, peace, and long suffering, and gentleness, and goodness, and faith, and meekness, but also temperance. So, therefore, cooperate with the Spirit of God. What's another thing? Well, another step is this. I dwelt upon the thought that Christ in his humanity perfected by a life of what? Holiness. Holiness. See, so it was not just simply that his life was perfected by the fact that he constantly resisted evil, because, brothers and sisters, there's more to life than resisting evil things. Thank the Lord. It's not about just cut off, cut off, cut off bad music, cut off bad food, and cut off bad friends, and cut off, cut off. Yes, there's going to be a lot of cutting off we're going to have to do in this world, but there's also a lot of cutting on. You got to fill the gaps. You got to bridge the gaps. If you cut off TV, replace it with the study of God's Word. If you're going to cut off movies, replace it with Christian fellowship. If you're going to cut off, cut on. So while there's a constant resistance of evil, there must also be a constant embracing of a life of holiness. There must be a constant embracing of a life of holiness. Now, we know that, brothers and sisters, the Bible says in Romans 7 that God's law is holy. So, obviously, we want to make sure that our life is in harmony with God's law. We know that Jesus was a man who studied the scriptures because we know that he said it is written. He lived by that. He died by that. Jesus was a man of prayer. Luke 22, you read about how even when he was assailed right there in the garden, that the Bible tells us that he would begin to pray more earnestly as he was in more agony. Jesus knew how to pray. All of these are embracing it. But I want to show you an act of holiness that sometimes we don't consider as deeds of holiness. Let's notice what the Bible says as we consider Acts chapter 10 and as we prepare to close on some of these points here. Acts chapter 10. In Acts the 10th chapter, we find that there was not only the embracing of holy virtues like prayer, the study of Scripture, the teaching of God's Word, amongst many other things, But we find also that there was something else. There were deeds of holiness that Jesus did. Remember, it wasn't just his character, but there was his work that was perfect. The Bible says, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, the Bible says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing what? Who went about doing what? Good. Good. Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Brothers and sisters, another dynamic, another dynamic of what was able to help Jesus to be faithful unto death. Number one, there was a constant resistance of evil. Number two, there was also a pursuing of that which was holy, like God's law, like God's word, like understanding prayer. And the list goes on. But brothers and sisters, along with that were deeds. Of holiness. Now I'm going to let you in on a secret. I stand before you 40 years old. I joined the church when I was 20. And something that I remember, because I one day inquired about a lot of the people who got baptized with me, and I wanted to know how they are doing. Well, I found out that the majority of them have either left the church or they've just gone cold. They're in the church, but there's no love for Christ anymore. They're just kind of burning out, fading out, phasing out. And I started to think about this. I was like, why is that happening? And I know that there was one thing that was very consistent in my life uh, when I joined the church that I'm grateful for because I believe it's the lifeline of the Christian. I've studied it now, so now I know it's the lifeline of the Christian. Literally, from the day I joined the seven-day Adventist church 20 years ago, you have to understand I'm coming from gross darkness. I was into the entertainment world. I was into the hip hop and R&B culture. I was really caught up. I saw a lot of things I pray you would never see. And what happens is when you come out of darkness into this marvelous light, brothers and sisters, this is a marvelous light. Amen. And when I saw this light, I could not help but to want to share this light. So that whenever I got a chance, my friend Damien, he was the guy that I was dancing with when I was in the world. As soon as I gave my heart to Jesus and joined this movement, he was the first brother I called. I said, D, you got to check this thing out. Found something powerful. He said, all right, show it to me. We showed it to him. He said, I'm in. He got baptized. And then next thing you know, we said, all right, let's go on a hunt. We started going looking for all of our friends. I said, look, I don't know anything, but we're going to have a Bible study at my house. And I said, bring them by my house. I didn't wait until I was some scholar. I said, no, I have a story to tell. I'm going to invite people to my house. Can you do that? Here it is. That next thing you know, I opened up the doors to my house. And Damien, he was the missionary. He would go and just bring people into the house. And next thing you know, we started having Bible studies at the house. And that's how I met my wife. Called me up. He said, hey, man, I met this young lady. I'm going to bring her to the study tonight. And her name was Alexandra. DeRay at that time, Alexandra Lemon today. And here it is that I met my wife. My wife, she gets baptized. We study with her sister. Her sister gets baptized. We study with her brother. Her brother gets baptized. And our life was just a life of literally burning up the streets of New York. And we started going around sharing God's truth. Now, brothers and sisters, what I did not realize is that I was plugging into a lifeline. And I didn't even find that out until much later. There is something about going about and doing good, something about going about and sharing with others. One of the great reasons why we get caught up in so much ridiculous fights amongst one another is because we have too much idle time. We would not get caught up in half of the minutia that we find ourselves getting caught up in if we were staying focused and standing firm and doing what Jesus did. Jesus did not get caught up into all of the philosophies and the battles that the Pharisees were going through. Jesus said, that's all right, y'all go ahead and go through it. Jesus says, there's people out there dying. I'm going to focus on the grassroots. That was Jesus' ministry. I'm focusing on the grassroots. I'm going to reach those people that are too, uh, you know, they're not up there with you guys, but I'm going to go and reach them and I'm going to give them the gospel. And Jesus was busy about his father's business. One of the reasons why we find ourselves getting caught up in so much stuff is because we're distracted and we're not staying focused and we're not doing the work God has called us to do. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you something. Do you know, now I made this rule for myself. You make whatever rules you want for you in your household. But I made a rule 20 years ago that stands today. Woe be unto me if I'm not with somebody sharing God's truth. How many of you can honestly take one hour, one day a week to share God's truth with somebody who doesn't know it? Are you that busy? We find so many excuses not to share God's word with others. We say, oh, the church is messed up. Listen, the church was messed up in Jesus' day. The church was messed up in Ellen White's day. That didn't stop Jesus from witnessing to centurions and Syrophoenicians. That did not stop Ellen White from witnessing to all of those outside of the church, and that shouldn't stop you. I'm amazed at all these in-reach ministries. There's there's so many of us that we're doing all this work strictly for in-reach. We say, oh, the church is messed up, so what's the point of trying to bring people in it? Well, first of all, who says you bring people in? The last I checked... When I read volume six of the testimony to the church, page 371, it says the Lord does not now work to bring many souls into the truth. And I get two points out of that. Number one, it is true. God is not now working while our church is going through all this stuff. God's not working to bring many people in right now. But it didn't say any, did it? So the first thing I learned is that it is true that while there's so many unconverted members and members who were once converted but have backslidden, God says, I will not allow Pentecost part two to take place until I finish shaking up my church. But while that's true, God says, but I am bringing some in. And I thank God one of them's name was Dwayne Lemon. How about your name? God didn't bring me in this movement to be part of the foolishness. He brought me in to be part of the solution. That's the difference. Now, brothers and sisters, my point is this. Number one, God says, I'm not working to bring many, but I am working to bring some in. And those some that I bring in are going to be part of the solution. But point number two, the Lord does not now work to bring many. The Lord does not now work to bring many. So the Bible makes it clear. The spirit of prophecy makes it clear. God brings people in, not you. Not me. I can't bring in anybody. And you know, the sooner we understand that is the less we'll be compromising and watering down God's message to try to bring people in. God brings people in. So you know what you do? It's not your business when they come in. You know what's your business? Get to work. Your business is plant seeds. Your business is nurture the people. Your business is do your gardening work. Your business is go ahead and work the soil, plant the seeds, and let God bring the harvest in his timing. God is not giving you the responsibility to say when, where, how, and why. God says, go, share. You know why? Because something happens to you when you share. Let's go to Isaiah 58 as we prepare to close. In Isaiah, the 58th chapter, there are so many people who believe that if we do this work, why do we do it? Oh, the church is so messed up, and all these other things. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. There's a lot of in-reach ministries today where people just are totally focused on all the problems in the church, and everything is about working with the people only in the church. You know the biggest reason why I have a problem with that? And I know God does. Here's what I found is strange. The same ministries that will say that everything needs to be focused within... are the same ministries that say they're given to the three angels' messages. And I thought to myself, I said, well, let's see now. The first angel's message, fear God and give glory to him through the hours. judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth and so on. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess there's a place that we can, obviously there's a place that we can share that even amongst our own people. But the second angel, what do you do with that? The second angel's message is Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Come out of her, my people. What happens to that message? If the ministry is totally in reach, you throw the second angel's message out the window. Unless you believe the Seventh-day Adventist church has become Babylon. And if you believe that, then you're going to have to really deal with some Bible, Pro- Bible and spirit of prophecy quotes that make it blazingly clear that God's church is not Babylon, nor will be Babylon. So you get the point? There are problems in the church, but that does not mean that we stop working to win souls to God's truth. God says, go ahead and work. Go ahead, plant the seeds. Go ahead, guide, instruct, and lead. And God says, and those that I want in, I'll bring them in now. And those that I don't, I won't. And guess what? You know what? Either way, I'm fine. You want to know why? Because it is that same wonderful writings of the spirit of prophecy that tells us that many people under the loud cry are going to join God's church as a result of the publications that they have once received. In other words, if we were doing gospel ministry, medical missionary work, and the publishing work as God told us to do, we don't have to worry about when folks come in. God himself is holding some people back right now. You don't want to fight God, do you? I've learned that that's a losing battle all day long. God is actually holding. So sometimes you study with your uncles and aunts and nieces and you say, why haven't they joined the church? It could be. And and you look back and you're not like some. Some people just blunder the work. They do a sloppy work and they mess up the work. So those individuals are going to have to do an assessment to say, what can I do better so that instead of one soul, it could be 20, like volume four, page 68 says. But there are others who might have done everything right and they're saying, but my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my friend, they still haven't joined God's church. It could be that God says, I'm holding them back. Because if they were to come in now and see the level of unconverted members and members who were once converted and have backslidden, they not only would leave, but they would leave with their hearts fully closed closed to me and never return. So therefore, God in mercy says, I'm going to hold some people back. I'm not going to bring them in at all yet. I'm going to just let your seeds of truth that you shared with them, I'm going to just let it bud, sprout, and go through its process slowly. And eventually, when it's safe, when I finish up my shaking process, then I'm going to go ahead and bring Pentecost part two in. So someone says, well, then why do I go out and share share Jesus with others? Well, first of all, you do it because Jesus said it. But secondly, let me show you a nice little secret that takes place. Isaiah 58. The Bible says in Isaiah, the 58th chapter, in verse 6, it says, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? This is ministry. This is doing good. This is what Jesus did. It says, Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. The Bible says that after we do all of these things, what's the very first word in the next verse? Then. Then. What does then mean? Because of this. So something happens to us because of this work we're doing. What does the Bible say happens? It says, then shall thy what? Then shall thy light break forth as the morning and thine health shall spring forth speedily and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy re-reward. In other words, brothers and sisters, there's something about the act of soul winning that actually blesses you. There's something about reaching those who know not God's truth, that it does something for you. Brothers and sisters, I love to meet my 7 day Adventist brethren, and when I see that they're in the darkness and they don't understand their foundation, and I can go ahead and introduce that foundation to them, oh, I love that. I love that. I've seen revival and reformation take place in the hearts of those who are Seventh-day Adventists, and I praise the Lord for that. But brothers and sisters, I don't know what it is, but when I go out into the world and I see people who are in just total, complete darkness, living in some of the most gross, basic sins, and you talk to those individuals, and you share the light of God's truth and God's love, and you watch that spark of light light up in their eyes, and they give their hearts to Jesus, brothers and sisters, that thing has an effect upon the heart. And nothing can replace. And God says, this is the work. A work within, a work without. And so you'll find that I want you to look at this. When we think about Jesus and doing good, we see him healing the blind, the lame, the dumb, and the sick. When we think about Jesus doing good, we see him there feeding the 5,000. When we think about Jesus doing good, we also see him there preaching and teaching his words of truth to others. And the key point is this, is that it says very clearly in the words of inspiration, it tells us the light of the Son of righteousness is to shine forth in good works and words of truth and deeds of holiness. Deeds of holiness. How was Christ's life perfected? His life was perfected by a life of constant resistance of evil. But his life was also perfected by an embracing of holiness what are those aspects of holiness it is of course keeping his law it is the study of his word it is spending time in the secret chambers of prayer but brothers and sisters it is also in deeds of holiness you got to be about your father's business and i guarantee you if you're staying focused and you're standing firm and you're being about your father's business Brothers and sisters, you won't have time to get caught up in a lot of the distracting forces that is stealing away the faith of so many of God's people in the remnant church right now. Don't forget that picture. Stay focused. Do what God says. We are told... Christ, the outshining of the Father's glory, came to the world as its light. He came to represent God to men, and of him it is written that he was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power and went about doing good. May God help us that we will go about our Father's business. May we make a decision to be like Jesus, to understand that Christ in us, the hope of glory is the goal, and Christ being in us, Is that perfect life he lived? We must live it as well. And Jesus, his life was perfected by a constant resistance of evil. You'll be tempted, but Christ has given you power through his Holy Spirit that you can constantly, not once in a while, constantly resist evil. But he will also empower you that you may also have a life and a character perfected as a result of embracing his holiness. His holiness is spending time in his word. His holiness is spending that time in the secret chambers of prayer. But brothers and sisters, it is also through deeds of holiness. And you will find that if we make our lives modeled in this fashion like Jesus, you will be amazed at how you will have no time for the foolishness that takes place in the world or in the church. Stay focused. Stand firm. Amen. 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 Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that while we are living in the very last moments of earth's history, you are calling unto us as your people to stay focused and to stand firm, to keep the picture of Christ working in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. And Father, you are calling us to cooperate with you. We thank you for these few gems that we have learned about the life of Jesus. I pray, dear God, that you will help us to take it seriously, take it to heart. And may you enable us and empower us, Father, that by your grace and your love, you may show us how to go forward in faith and to finish the work in this generation and to allow that work of Christ in us, the hope of glory, a life perfected through a constant resistance of evil, a life perfected through the embracing of that which is holy. And help us, Father, to realize that deeds of holiness is the calling of everyone who names the name of God. Please, Lord, let it be our experience and our reality, and may it bring us closer to Jesus and cause us to reflect his image even perfectly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.